0: Welcome to the Impact Nations Podcast, Episode 10, Kronos vs. Kairos. Was it or wasn't it Jesus' time? Why didn't his brothers believe in him? Why was Jerusalem so different from Galilee? This week, Steve gives us lots to chew on from John Chapter 7.
1: So Tonight, we are, as I say, doing a portion of Chapter 7. Um, I wanted to just lay some stuff out, kind of a long introduction, and to say that with, uh, with John's gospel, um, the setting is really, really important. He, he tells us, uh, we looked at chapter 5 a little while ago, and, and the, the healing at the pool. We, we looked at chapter 4, the woman at the well, and the setting is very often critical. Um, this passage takes place Here, I want to talk about time and and setting, but uh, this takes place during the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, And and the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the three main festivals that were celebrated uh, by Jews every year. And the Feast of Tabernacles was really a community celebration. Uh, Israel uh, came together every year um, to celebrate particularly their history in God. uh, It's also, uh, well, let me just move forward. I realized I was going to go down a a road I don't need to. So secondly, it's a remembrance of their 40 years in the wilderness. Um, It's a time of remembering their poverty and their very, very precarious lives for 40 years. And so connected with that, it's a celebration of how God faithfully watched over them. Um, you know, it was a feast of thanksgiving, and in a lot of ways, it's it's much like our uh, Canadian, which is coming up in two weeks, the Canadian Thanksgiving, or the American Thanksgiving in, in late November. It's a family celebration. It's a, a national kind of celebration, and it's a, it is a real time of thanksgiving. Now... I shared with you before about the temple and the tabernacle. You may recall that uh, Moses built the tabernacle under God's direction. And that was the place where the glory of God came down, the Shekinah glory. And then um, some centuries later, uh, Solomon built the temple. You can read about it in in, uh, 1 Kings 5. And again, the glory of God came down. So, the presence of God was known to be in the tabernacle in their history, and they were always longing again for the glory of God to come. We talked a little bit about that last week. And so, here's why, another reason why I wanted to talk to you guys about the prologue, because this takes us right back to John 1.14, um, that uh, he tabernacled among us, and... and uh, he, he dwelt among us, and the real word, as I said last week, is He tabernacled. The, the Logos, the word tabernacled, and the word became flesh. So, this is the background we need to understand John 7, because if we don't understand the setting, we miss a lot of the significance. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, in, uh, in Matthew 17, where they go up the mountain and Jesus is transfigured, and uh, uh, Peter and James and John are there, and Moses and Elijah show up, and Peter says, "Let's build three tabernacles." Mm-hmm. And people always say, "Why did he say that?" Well, because that event happened during the Feast of Tabernacles, so that that's why that's an example of why setting is really, really important. But the the second thing is this: um, there's time in the uh, in the setting. But uh, pardon me, there's uh, yeah, and then there's this whole issue of Kairos. Um, kairos is a word. There's two words in the Greek for time: Chronos, which is tick 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 regular time, and Kairos, which is a particular, special, God ordained, planned time. It's divine time, and. Uh, we see at the beginning of this chapter, they're up in, uh, in Galilee, and his brothers say, well listen, if you want people to know about you, there's a certain amount of sarcasm in this, if you want people to know about you, why don't you go down to Judea, down to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, because why would you hide away? You want people to know who you are and what you're doing. But Jesus said to them in verse 6, he says, My time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. In verse 8, he says, I'm not going up to the festival yet because my time has not yet fully come. They only understood that in a natural way. And frankly, for a long time when I read it, I just thought, "What, What happened? Did he just change his mind? But you may remember that I've taught you that with John, there's layers and layers of meaning. And he did not say Kronos, he said Kairos. What he was really saying is, this is not the appointed time for me to go. It doesn't fit in God's plan. This is classic John, where there's a a double meaning. Um, And he says this, this is also another double meaning, I'm not going up to the festival yet, because my Kairos at special time has not yet fully come. The word John uses there is a little bit of an irregular word for going up. And it's the same word he uses all the way near the end, where he talks about ascending to the Father. Isn't that interesting? So there's these parallel meanings. And that's why I keep saying week after week, I encourage us all to go deep into John's gospel. There is so much treasure that is buried there. Um, so, again we see, and we'll see this happening when he he goes to Jerusalem, his, his brothers and Jesus are speaking at two different levels. Why wasn't this the Kairos time for him? Well, it's because the fulfillment of God's divine time, Jesus knew, would be Passover, not the Feast of Tabernacles. So one's in, in, the fall and one's in the spring. So Jesus is talking about the divine plan of God when he says it's not time. So that's under the, the setting, the whole thing of time. But secondly, of course, his place is really important uh, with, with John. John presents a contrast <coughs> between Galilee and Jerusalem. You can just feel it. Uh, I was aware that as I was reading it and reading it this week, it's like I could almost hear slightly sinister music, you know, the violins doing this in the background, and and maybe it was almost in black and white. And I'm overstating it, but I was really feeling the difference because Galilee in the Gospels is, uh, by and large, the, the majority of the time, It's a setting filled with joy and celebration. And the people are so excited whether they're they're following him as he goes down the streets of Jericho or Capernaum. And and so it's a, it's a, a place where they gladly receive Jesus. Almost universally, Jerusalem is, in Jerusalem he's continually faced with opposition. So John's doing something very particular here in bringing him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Here's what's happening. In Jerusalem, Jesus is confronting the powers that be, the spiritual powers that reside behind the structures. Uh, I think I've probably mentioned before on this series, I certainly mention it with people all the time, Walter Wink wrote a terrific Series of books, and the last one, the powers that be really summarizes his position, which I absolutely embrace that that the powers that be dark spiritual powers invade our structures, our political system, our legal system mm-hmm. uh, uh, companies and corporations and and so What we see here is Jesus confronting the powers that be, in this case, very much represented by the religious authorities that he is just coming straight against in Jerusalem. You see this again and again and again when he's in Jerusalem. Um, And you know why? It's because Jesus is talking always about freedom. He's come to set people free. Uh, if you think about Luke four eighteen and 19, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, freedom to the captives. He's about freedom. In fact, later in the next chapter, John 8, he's going to say, the truth will set you free. Well, the powers that be are always, always threatened by any message of freedom. Um, Anything that challenges the status quo is a huge threat to the powers that be. And I would encourage us to Mm -hmm. learn from John because that hasn't changed one bit. Mm -hmm. Take whatever system you want within our own society. Whatever challenges the status quo, whatever is about freedom, is coming against spiritual powers. I mean, we're in a time right now where there's, you know, there's a big socio-political issue around football players and so forth. What is it? It's about status quo being challenged. And I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong. I don't want to get into that tonight. But I am saying that there are powers behind every structure that we have. And Jesus is confronting them here. So, we've got, we've got the issue of time, the issue of place... There's a third kind of issue that I want you to understand before we go further into this chapter. There's a theme here, and it's all about decision. Um, Throughout John's Gospel, he is presenting, starting all the way in the prologue and all the way through, the revealing of Jesus' true identity. Um, I told you, I think I told you last week, although it might have been when I was preaching, but 24 times in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am. He says it emphatically 24 times. And so it's about, John is about presenting the identity of who this Jesus is. And how we hear that message and it will affect how we hear what he has to say. And how we hear him must lead us to a place of decision. So that's another underlying theme all the way through this chapter. We go back to his brothers. Yeah, yeah, they're saying, why don't you go down there, because if you want people to know about you and see all the great stuff you're doing, don't hide away here. And then just in case we miss the the irony and almost sarcasm in that, John says clearly, right after that, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. It's about decision. John is calling us to decision all the way through. All the way through. Verse 12. This is now, now Jesus has gone into Jerusalem. He went in secretly. By the way, that's what he means when he said, it isn't my time. He didn't change his mind. It wasn't his time to go in publicly. He needed to go in under the radar because of the Kairos time, the divine plan of the Father. Is everybody tracking with that? Mm -hmm. Okay. So now he's in Jerusalem. And verse 12 says this, And there was a lot of discussion about him among the crowds. And some were saying, he's a good man. And others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. This recurs again and again in chapter 7. Uh, uh, Verse 26, Can it be true that the authorities know that he's the Messiah? Verse 27, but we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, nobody will know where he's from. We know the irony of that, right? Because they think that they know he was born in Galilee, and of course he was born in Judea, in Bethlehem, which just fits the prophecy of Micah and others. So, if you got your Bibles, let's just read another little section on this whole issue of decision. Uh, verse 40 and to 44, so people can catch up at home. John 7, 40-44. to Somebody with a loud voice who's near a light. Who'd like to read 40-44? to Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying,
2: said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was. So, there was a division
1: among the people because of him. Now, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Great. Thanks, Dana. So, that's the setting. That's what John, the, the, it's like the palette that he paints uh, as, as the background for what's, what's taking place. So what I'd like to do now is I'm going to get somebody else, if you would read, we're going to just back it up a little bit, because I want to talk about the whole issue of living water. Um, Could somebody read nice and loudly, please, uh, verse 33 through 39.
2: Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am... You cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified.
1: Thanks. Um, I've been thinking a lot about this passage. So he says you will look for me but you will not find me and where I am you cannot come. What do you notice about the grammar of that that verse? What sticks out? Anybody notice? Present tense. Present tense. Bingo. He says you're going to look for me but you won't be able to find me because where I am, you cannot come. Now, isn't that interesting? He is standing in front of them, but he says, where I am, you cannot come. Once again, Jesus is speaking at one level, at a divine level, and the Pharisees only hear him at a lower natural level. John is clearly taking us back to those truths that he laid out in the prologue. Jesus is God. Remember, the word was God. He's taking us right back to the I am. We'll refer to this again in chapter 8. Remember, when, April, uh, when Moses said at the burning bush, well, who do I tell them sent me? He says, you tell them I am. Right. So this is, John is just shouting to us, in this passage right here, the identity of Jesus and that Jesus' identity confronts the powers that be. It speaks of his eternal existence. It tells us, excuse me, that Jesus, because it's present tense, he's saying Jesus lives outside the constraints of time. Right now he lives outside the constraints of time. And this will continue to grow and grow through this gospel as I said Jesus in this gospel says I am in the emphatic 24 times and I think when he's confronting the Pharisees with this uh, where I am you cannot come he's speaking at at a, a divine level if you like a supernatural eternal level And they're hearing it in a temporal level. Remember another time we saw him talking to a Pharisee about that? In John chapter 3, he said to Nicodemus, he said, Nicodemus, man, if, if I speak to you about earthly things and you can't understand them, how are you going to understand heavenly things? It's the theme. John just keeps taking us round and round the mountain, but we're getting higher and higher. It's a spiral. Does that make sense to you guys?
0: Today's episode is brought to you by the Impact Nations Facebook page. Impact Nations has the privilege of seeing the kingdom of God at work in nations all over the globe. As I record this, we have a team of 30 people arriving in Guatemala City to bring 100 water filters, food, and a massive puppet show that will deliver a message of good news to the poor. Meanwhile, we're distributing over 300 water filters in Ethiopia that will impact thousands of students and teachers. Another 50 water filters are about to be distributed in Haiti. Just last week, we helped five young women start their own small businesses in Kampala, Uganda. You can catch regular updates on this sort of thing every day on Facebook. You'll also find Steve's writings. For the next few Tuesdays, you'll find some short articles from Steve answering common questions about healing. So head to facebook.com slash impactnationsministries to get your daily dose of encouragement. And now, back to the podcast.
1: Um, so now we have this passage that I love, I've always loved, probably most of us have. John seven thirty seven. and on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood in with a loud voice and said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come and drink, and out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. You can tell I know that verse. And probably you do too. The context for that verse is everything. The Feast of Tabernacles, or Tent's. Jesus declared himself the source of living water. He said, come drink from me. I'm the source of living water. And as I mentioned to you briefly, um, now it's a couple of months ago, in chapter 4, he said this in the context of the very high point of the feast, of the festival. Because at that culminating climactic point, Every year, the high priest filled a golden pitcher uh, with water and poured it right there. And while he did, the choir sang antiphonally, meaning two choirs singing back and forth to each other. Um, from Isaiah uh, twelve three: With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. This was the great pinnacle. And right there, as they watch the high priest do what he does every year at at this Feast of Tabernacles, that's the moment, at this special solemn moment when Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Can you see how confrontational this is to the powers that be? I think we miss the confrontation. And it's wonderful good news, but it's not that good news if you're part of the religious structure. Imagine you were the high priest, you just poured this in, suddenly he stands up and shouts so that everybody could hear him. It's very interesting, isn't it? So John is taking us back and he's, he's reinforcing what he taught us through Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well, where he said to her, if you'd asked... I would have given you living water. Mm-hmm. This is the second time he uses the very same phrase. I told you last time in chapter 4, living water means moving water. It's, it, it's full of life because it's, it's got movement in it. Uh, Zechariah, one of, the, one of the, the last books in the Old Testament, one of the, uh, what we call them minor prophets, not because they're not important, just because their writings are shorter. But uh, Zechariah is the longest, I think, of the minor prophets Uh, 14.8, he predicted, he looked ahead and he saw that living waters would flow out of Jerusalem. And then the other place I've been thinking a lot about is Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47 is that incredible vision and revelation Ezekiel has of the water, the river of God, flowing out from the temple, from the threshold. And as it goes... He says, and I first went, and and it was water to my ankles, water to my knees, water to my waist, and then it was a river that no man could cross. Remember that? Mm -hmm. And that has got a whole message in itself. You notice the further it went from the temple, the deeper it got. So, he sees this, he describes it, and then the angel of the Lord speaks to him and says to Ezekiel, this water flows out to the eastern region, goes down to the Arabah to the desert. And when it enters the sea, the, the sea that is foul water, that's the dead sea, that is foul water, the water of the sea becomes fresh. Every kind of living creature that swarms will live wherever the river flows, and there will be a huge number of fish because this water goes there. Since the water will become fresh, there will be life everywhere the river goes. That's Ezekiel 47, 8 and 9. That where the river of God goes, it brings life. And I love one of the translations just says it brings life to the foul places. So the Spirit of God brings life to the foul places in our lives. Now, when Jesus said, living water immediately there's the shock because because they're pouring out the water but also remember it was a culture that was auditory that 95 percent of the people in first century Palestine were totally illiterate if you think about that probably you know statistically probably nine or ten of the disciples were illiterate and uh, as but as a result or as a to uh, to compensate for that, they had way better skills, just like we see sometimes when we're off in villages. They had way better skills at remembering. The oral tradition is so much more powerful. So when he stands up there, all of the oral tradition, the scriptures just flooding over them. The Zechariah 14 8, the Ezekiel 47, the classic Isaiah 55 1, it's a beautiful passage. Come, everyone who is thirsty, come to the waters, and you without money, come, buy, and eat. I want you to notice the inclusive language. Come, everyone who is thirsty. And Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come. This is incredible inclusiveness, which also is a great threat to the status quo, inclusiveness always threatens the status quo. So, all of this is going on. All of this. So, at one level, he's saying uh, that there's a there's if you're thirsty, come to me. But there's this unquenchable aspect that the more you receive, the more you you long for for more. Right. Um. One of, one of the books uh, that's not in the Protestant Bible but is in the Catholic Bible, the Orthodox Bible, is the Wisdom of Sirach, And it's a, I find it a very, very rich book. It's structured much like the, uh, the Proverbs. And the Wisdom of Sirach 24-21, says this. Those who eat of me will hunger for more. Those who drink of me will thirst for more. And that's the nature mm-hmm. of our relationship with, mm-hmm. with Him, with Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a great verse? Mm-hmm. Here's another aspect of what's going on when Jesus calls out, and he was thirsty, let him come. In crying out to the great throng that's there for the festival, Jesus is revealing His own thirst to give life to people. Mm-hmm. You know, we so often... we you know, uh, he's presented in Matthew as, uh, as one who saw the people as harassed and helpless. Mm-hmm. Some of your Bibles say distressed because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Those words are very strong. Those have been made polite for our English language. Mm-hmm. They really, those words were because he saw them as molested and as pinned down. It was a wrestling hold. Mm-hmm. Those are strong words. Mm-hmm. But that's how he saw what was going on with the people. And he felt compassion. He was moved with compassion. So we see here his own thirst to give life. His expression of compassion for all people. If anyone will come. Anyone. Not if you pray the sinner's prayer. Not if you do the right things. Not if you go to church. Not if, 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 if. He says, whoever is thirsty, just come. Just come. Um... And I love the parallel with, with uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't that just a fantastic verse? I fell in love with that verse in my first year of walking with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Huh. So he says, come, and then he goes on to say this. So the first part is come and receive living water, like he said to the Samaritan woman. But then the next verse is... And the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been received, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. John's pointing ahead, most likely to the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. Um, and, but here is something that's really interesting to me. There's a law. He's, he's equating, John, in case we didn't get it, is equating water specifically with the Holy Spirit. And at one level we can say, well, how did that happen? I mean, how did you just get to say that? But there's a long scriptural tradition of water representing the Holy Spirit. Uh, let me give you, my favorite example is Isaiah 44, verse 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out, capitalized, my spirit mm. on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Mm. You know, in, in uh, the creation account, Genesis 1, we have the triune God. We have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Spirit. And the Spirit there is Numa, the same word for wind and spirit, same word. So it's equated with the movement of the wind, right? And Jesus says in John 3, it's spirits like the wind blows. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going. But also equated with living water. And we saw the examples I've tried to give you over the last 10, 15 minutes. Um, So there's a long tradition of that. But here's the other thing I want you to notice. There's a progression here that Jesus is presenting to us. And I want us to really consider this for a few minutes. Jesus offers out of his great, his longing, his thirst to give living water, to give life to people. He says, receive this. And so the first part of the progression, we receive his, the, the life of the Spirit. And so then that life is in us and if you look at that following verses, 38 especially, but 38 and 39, that life is now in us and what is it Supposed to do. Is it supposed to give us great church services. and prayer meetings. <laughs> no. It's supposed to flow from us. What we receive. We give right. Um, Matthew 10.8. Freely you receive freely give. Jesus calls us to not only come to him. With our spiritual thirst. He calls us to quench the thirst of others mm-hmm. this is why we spent some time earlier on, on Jesus being in us remember I told you that that uh, Paul says 164 times we are in Christ mm-hmm. we're going to get later to chapter 14 where there's this, this inseparable quality he says I'm in the Father, you're in me, I'm in you there's this immersion, it's like if, you, if I took if I took two flasks of different color water and I pour them in, they're just going to become one. You can't separate them. And so he calls us because Christ is in us to not only come with our thirst, but to quench the thirst of others. And I'd like to make this tangible. I think we're called to quench the thirst of the lonely, of the poor, of the isolated. Uh, I, of the oppressed, because certainly we live in a time where there is racial oppression, social oppression of the of the uh, the single mothers, those who are in pain, the sick, he says, "Come and drink, but then from you let it flow out to everybody else. so there's a, I think there's a lot in chapter seven and and we only hit a few of the spots, but Does that help you a little bit with the context? Does it help you to understand some of the significance of what he said? That his words were very challenging to the status quo, but they were also very liberating to people. And they were an expression of his own compassion, and as I've said twice, really his own thirst. So, let me just throw a couple of questions open for us to think about, and then I think we're going to wrap it up. What What do living waters look like for us to receive? For us to receive living water from Him, what does that look like? Mercy. Mercy? Okay, good. There's no right or wrong answer. Peace
2: that passes understand.
1: Peace. Joy. 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 We're getting the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians five. Anybody want to go with long suffering? Or no, sorry. Anyway, <laughs> what else? What else does does living water look like? Strength. me? Strength. Strength. What else? Healing. Healing.
2: Forgiveness.
1: For, forgiveness. That's interesting. We're gonna we're gonna go there in a little while. What did you say? Resting. Resting. Ah, okay. Resting. Cleansing? Cleansing? Hmm. Anything reflect the power of God in living waters? If the living waters are Holy Spirit? Because it, for me, as I, was, as I just wrote that question down quickly, it took me right back To some of my most profound encounters with the Holy Spirit. When I wrote the question, I went, oh yeah, that's what it is. When I just get overpowered by the powerful presence of God. I remember one time Christina and I were at a conference in the 80s. And so much of this was new to us. And the Spirit of God came into a room. And everybody was on their face. Everybody, and nobody said, let's get on our face. And there were 2,300 people glued to the floor. Sometimes that river's white water. (laughs) So how do they come to us? How do these living waters, how is it that they come to us?
2: So many I mean, they can come to us directly from the Lord, just feeling His presence. Mm -hmm. They can come to us through the Word. They can come to us from other people.
1: Yes. Yes. Very good. I
2: think they come when you ask.
1: So they come when you ask, sometimes just directly from the Lord, sometimes through His Word. There's a a very strong theological tradition that says that when Jesus was talking about living waters to the woman at the well, he was talking about revelation, not power encounter, not comfort, but revelation. And that's one, I mean, that's one theological tradition. How else do they how else do these living waters come?
2: I think we can stop and let it come. Just ah. another rest answer, but resting. Resting and stopping in your
1: day. That's very good. That's very good. Huh. I've got an interesting book you might like. Um, uh, Julian of Norwich, written in the 14th century. I'm reading it right now. And and right at the heart of it is what you're talking about, is resting but not being passive, that the Lord just comes, you know, resting. How else does living waters come to us?
2: Well,
1: it says he who believes, so believing. Believing, sure. Sure. What makes us thirsty? He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come. Not if anybody's doctrine is right. Not if you've done well this week. He says, if you're thirsty, which is a reflection of Isaiah 55, one-ho, everyone, whoever is thirsty, come to the waters, right? This incredible inclusiveness. Well, what makes us thirsty?
2: When we're
1: empty. When When we're? Empty. Empty? The world makes you thirsty. The world makes you thirsty. Me too sometimes. (laughs) Any of you notice that that we're in a real interesting season right now? Mm -hmm. And I need to pull back. I need living waters in a very tangible way. Personally for me. I mean I just got to have that every day or I just can get discouraged with what's going on.
2: I think sometimes if you ask God how shall I pray for someone and then he tells you how and then you see it come that it makes you more thirsty to to ask him how to pray.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Any other any questions about what I've taught you tonight or or comments or I make anybody mad. <laughs> no, you can make me mad. So, uh, verse thirty-eight says, "The one who believes in me, as the Scripture has said." What do you think he's referring to there? I think he's referring to different places, including Isaiah forty-four. I think uh, he's, which to me is very, very clear. I will pour out my spirit and my blessing, right? Um, uh, I think he is referring to the, uh, the image of water that we've talked about, uh, the image of wind that is in there. I think he's referring to scriptures that, again, because they were an oral tradition, they knew these scriptures. They just knew them. And uh, I think that's what he's referring to, that Old Testament tradition, as the scriptures have said. So when he said it, He knew, well, he probably didn't know anyway what most of the people were thinking about the scriptures before, and so he was saying, yes, that's what you're supposed to think about. Yeah, that's entirely... Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah.
2: Well, it's like you said about the priests in the temple were crying out for the Messiah, and meanwhile the Messiah is passing by outside, and they come up to tell and be quiet. These people, a lot of them in their tradition, would have been crying out for the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to get them to recognize mm-hmm. I
1: have so come to the answer to that He says elsewhere in John, you search the scriptures because mm-hmm. you think there you're going to find the answer, revelation, and I am the answer. I'm the very one that the scriptures speak of. This is such a strong theme in John. Are you guys... Yeah. Are you kind of enjoying or getting something out of this journey in terms of the depth of meaning that's in there? It's interesting, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I think it's, I find it fascinating. Fascinating. The Kairos, my time has not come yet. Mm-hmm. And for years I thought, what, was he just trying to fool him? Mm-hmm. Jesus, did you tell a fit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah. coughs> Excuse me, no. So there's a great depth. Anybody else have any comments or questions? Is
2: the Holy Spirit sometimes referred to as
1: water in Scripture? I know sometimes we refer to him as rain. You know, yeah. But I, I guess, but I don't know that he's referred to specifically. Not specifically. There's no doubt. But, but we get things like, I will pour water out on the dry land uh, and I'll pour out my spirit on your descendants. You know, you could say, well, those are two different things, but I think clearly they're not. But it doesn't say, uh, you have to, by association, find, because whenever, not whenever, but very often, when there's a water motif, like Ezekiel, like Zechariah, the water motif is talking about the Spirit. Uh, But there's no verse that says, unless there's one that I've missed that says the Holy Spirit is water. It's rather, it's an image for us to understand. You know, the Bible, we have to realize, folks, the Bible is full of metaphor. It is full of metaphor. It is not an owner's manual. It's not the phone book. It's full of metaphor. And, and, and many people would say language itself is metaphorical. We try to create uh, concepts and images with words and that's what the bible's doing there. Okay. Um I think we're going to stop and I hope that you got something from this and next week we'll jump into to, to uh, John chapter 8. Mm-hmm.
0: That concludes this week's episode of the Impact Nations podcast. Be sure to email your questions to podcast at impactnations.com. We'll discuss your questions in our third question and answer episode, which is coming up in just a few short weeks. I can tell you we have a special guest from here locally in Albuquerque. In the meantime, be sure to visit impactnations.com and our Facebook page for all sorts of exciting updates and great content. Have a great week.